Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome back, everyone, to the seventh episode of the Take the Points podcast. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth, joined by Arjun Menon today, where we will be talking about what it's like to build a team without an elite quarterback. And then we'll be joined by our guest, Arif Hassan from The Athletic, later on after we have our main discussion to kind of expand on this more. And so, Arjun, you know, you came up with this topic about, you know, talking about what it's like to have a non-elite quarterback and how to team build with with that aspect. So, you know, I'm curious as someone who roots for a team, you know, in the chargers that, who have a very elite quarterback, like why exactly you wanted to go into so much detail on, on this specifically. Yeah, this is a topic that has really been interesting to me since I kind of dove into football analytics about a year and a half ago. Cause like ultimately um, making a decision at, at the quarterback position, you really have to think about like the analytical film and like mental side of football because like making a decision of choosing choosing a starting quarterback or franchise quarterback is like a franchise altering decision and like as we stated in episode three there really isn't a right way to build a team that make can make the conference championship but like overall like there does seem to be kind of this optimal blueprint that only a few teams every single year are able to take advantage of which is you know you have a a quarterback that gives you at least average production on a rookie deal, or you have um, someone like Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady, who, even though you pay them top dollar, they can go get the job done. Um, and so, you know, not a lot of teams have those type of options, only like 11 or 10 do, or 10, 11, 10 or 11 do. So that's kind of how, why I wanted to talk about this, because it is a topic that I think affects a lot of teams. And there's three aspects of this idea that I kind of wanted to talk about, you know, in this episode, one being, um, you know, who are quarterbacks that kind of fit this, um, this bill of like, they're good, but they're not good enough to warrant a high, high end deal, which leads into part two, which is how do you build a Super Bowl roster around this type of quarterback? And then three, which is like the ultimate decision, like, what would we do if we were tasked with this situation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, those are those are great questions. And I want to like, you know, kind of jump into the first one and and talk about that. So, you know, when we when we like talk about, you know, non-elite quarterback, like what what does that definition mean to you? And like who is the the worst quarterback that you would give like a high-end top of the market extension to, kind of like similar to the one that Kyler Murray just got recently? Yeah, so I think so top of the market is kind of a weird thing because like I think only like the truly, truly elite 
quarterbacks will reset the market. So let's if we say top of the market, we could say like top seven, top eight uh, money. Um, so the, the worst quarterback I would say would be like Russell Wilson. I think he's right there at the bottom of tier two at, at this stage in his career. Um, I don't think he's obviously not in the tier with like Kirk Cousins or, or Derek Carr, but but Russell is, you know, a quarterback that's kind of whose efficiency has dipped in recent years. Um, you know, our friend Steven Ruiz had a really funny tweet when Russell got traded, which is like in the past two years, his EPA per play is literally Teddy Bridgewater's. Um, but but, you know, Russell's a great quarterback. So he he's probably um, the quarterback I'd, I'd he's the worst quarterback I'd be comfortable giving an extension to. But um, back to your other question, like a non-elite quarterback is to me like a quarterback that can that isn't able to do more with less. Like you kind of have to surround them with a good situation, either have good weapons or a good scheme where you're running a lot of play action or you're able to manufacture a lot of defenders in the box, which opens up a lot of things in the pass game um, by forcing defenders to bite. Or, you know, as we've proven at PFF over the past like, year or so, um, as you add more defenders in the box, there's a higher likelihood of an, a higher like uh, successful pass through the air. And like obviously EPA per pass increases as you add more defenders in the box as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I do think the, the key to having a non-elite quarterback and having a successful offense is increasing the amount of defenders that are in the box. Right. So, you know, when, when the amount of defenders in the box increases EPA per pass goes up, you know, per, per box player count. So, you know, on, on early downs um, between 2014 and 2021, the, when there's, when there's four defenders in the box. So, you know, this, this happened, you know, very rarely only on, only on 2000 of the, you know, roughly hundred thousand plays to, to happen in that span. The, the EPA per pass was negative uh, 0.15, but then you add um, a fifth defender in the box there and the EPA per pass becomes 0.02. So it becomes barely positive. And then it, you know, it basically has a linear progression up where mm-hmm. when you have eight defenders in the box, uh, your EPA per pass is 0.13 on average across, across the league. So, you know, doing things where you're, you're having 12 personnel uh, to, to increase, you know, the amount of seven or eight man boxes that you see, because when you're in 12 personnel, uh, you see stacked boxes around 50% of the time. When you're in 11 personnel, you're going to see six man boxes the majority of the time. So, you know, I think I think like a, a really good example of this is, um, you know, kind of what the the um, the Browns are were, were going for, you know, where um, they they wanted both Austin Hooper and David Njoku out there be, to support, you know, an, a non elite quarterback in, in Baker Mayfield um, before before they got rid of him there. And that that's like what they're going for where they wanted to be in 12 personnel inviting more defenders in the box so that they can use play action out of that and and take advantage of advantageous passing situations yeah dude i i love that answer and you know not only the browns the ravens i feel like are trending that way as well drafting isaiah likely and um some charlie kolar i think charlie Collar, yeah mm-hmm. yeah in, in the fourth round so now they're gonna have you know a bunch of versatile athletic tight ends uh, 12 personnel increased men in the box should help Lamar um, in the passing game. But also like, you know, going back to like what quarterbacks kind of fit this bill. Um, you know, I want to reference um, my, my Kirkulian quarterback tiers list. Obviously I got to give credit. Um, I, I, I didn't follow the guy at the time. There's a guy Twitter on Twitter at C Mike spin move. So he originally kind of came up with this idea. Um, I made it into a graph and I, I forgot to give credit to him. So first of all, credit to him, but but, you know, Tej, I was 
Uh, I don't know if you know, like Sloan just sent out an email today that was like um, asking for, uh, you know, opening the research paper competition. I was actually thinking about su submitting this because if, you know, I had uh, my weights for Derek Carr, I said he was 1.3 Kirks earlier in like February or March. And then when he signed his extension, his new deal, his APY was 1.3 of what Kirk was getting. So, you know, it's, it's pretty predictive year over year, you know, if I must say, but, but, you know, all jokes aside, I think, I think the graph is like a, a interesting way of like seeing what quarterbacks are in that tier three or these non-elite quarterbacks that probably won't um, help you win a Super Bowl. So I looked at like these quarterbacks in, in tier three and like their the offensive EPA per play since they signed their new deal. So like when they're not making rookie quarterback money, um, how has their offense fared? The Raiders since signing Derek Carr to a new deal, average 0.01 EPA per play on offense. This is like dropbacks and rushing. Um, that's 19th in the leagues. Uh, the Titans since signing Tannehill to his extension, 0.1, so about sixth in the league. The Vikings since signing Kirk Cousins, 0.022, which is 15th. So basically average, which is the Kirk, you know, that's where Kirk needs to be. The Falcons um, since 2018, because, you know, Matt Ryan's kind of been on a, on a, um, non-rookie deal for a while since 2018 they've uh, averaged 0.016 epa per play which is 17th niners with jimmy g 0.036 which is 13th so only one team that in this that has a quarterback in this tier three or this kirk tier ranks in the top 10 and it isn't even a real offense it's a fake offense it's a play action driven offense in 2021 ryan Tannehill on i guess like pure dropbacks which is filtering out play action scrambles rpos he ranked 18th in epa per play average 0.03 epa per play on all of these non-fake dropbacks you know that's obviously a an extreme word to use but but you know like this it, it really isn't like a true quarterback offense where like he's asked to do a lot because they have derrick henry and a pretty you know decent offensive line so it's it's tough to like really have offensive success and then the metrics kind of show that um but yeah are there any other like quarterbacks um, that you think should be in like the tier three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, you, you mentioned Russell Wilson as like kind of the, the line for you to, to draw it at. And, you know, I, I actually go a little bit lower than you. I think, I, I think I would, you know, it would probably be the Derek Carr line for me. So like the, you know, around the 12th best quarterback in the NFL is like who I would give an extension to, because, you know, a lot of that is just like, when you, and like, this would, this would probably be, you know, an extension, like coming off their rookie deal, like, what the Cardinals just did with Kyler is, you know, when you, when you draft a quarterback, even if they're not necessarily like a top eight quarterback or maybe someone, you know, that's like an elite level, like you, you just, you have to pay them. Like you don't want to, no one is good at drafting quarterbacks and, you know, it's only a 50% hit rate, um, you know, most years and, and all that stuff. You don't want to have to go back through, you know, looking in the draft, hoping a veteran will just become open randomly, like kind of like how the Broncos were, were waiting for a couple of years uh, until Russell Wilson became available. So, um, you know, I just think it's interesting, but you know, then if, if we talk about the Kirk tier more like Mac Jones is perfect in that tier right now, because while Tannehill and cousins and Carr and all those other guys are getting paid a lot of money to play quarterback at a tier three level, Mac Jones is not getting paid that much mm -hmm. to play quarterback at a, at a tier three level. And like, that's one of the things that Belichick, you know, realized when, when he wanted to get Mac Jones in that draft is Mac Jones, when he was playing in college, 
um, had had the you know highest rate of throws that could be mapped to the NFL, which was something that we we like looked at it at PFF, and he was playing basically an NFL offense. Uh, so you kind of knew how he was going to do when he got to the NFL because everything was going to be pretty similar. And so you knew he was going to be a tier three quarterback. Like, like, I think basically everyone agreed on that. And so when you're only paying a, a tier three quarterback, a rookie contract, that's when they can provide a lot of value for you because they're adding two or three wins above replacement. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's worth a lot. Uh, but once you're, once you have to pay them a big extension, that's, um, that's when it becomes, you know, um, someone who holds their team back. And that's why when you read off those EPA numbers, that's why the, these, the big contracts that these quarterbacks have gotten uh, in tier three have been holding back their offenses from success. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And that, that's a great segue into like part two of this discussion, which is like, how do you build a Super Bowl roster offense and defense with this type of quarterback? So, you know, I'll, I'll let you start, like what was one thing you wanted to say, like, in terms of like how you would start building a roster if you were forced to, like if you were hired like a Quezzi and and you would kind of like, you had to extend Kirk Cousins, like what is your plan to build a team around him? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I thought about this a lot. And what I kind of came to is for an average quarterback, having a strong offensive line is more important than having high-end receivers. Um, well, I think the opposite is true for elite quarterbacks, right? Like when you have an elite quarterback, uh, Aaron Rodgers can really maximize Devontae Adams. Uh, Patrick Mahomes can really maximize Tyree Kill. Now that Tyree Kill and Devontae Adams are in different teams, their projections are a lot lower this year. Right? If you look at their receiving props on, on DraftKings, if you look at their fantasy projections, like they just don't have quarterbacks that people believe can fully take advantage of their skill set. So when you have a strong offensive line, you have a run game to lean on, which is what an average quarterback really needs because they're not going to do well in pure passing situations. So if you can, you know, run on first and 10 and pick up five or six yards instead of three, if you have a bad run game, uh, you know, having them pass out of second and four is so much better than having them pass out of second or seven, second or eight. So I think, you know, I would focus a lot of my resources on uh, my offensive line from the get go when, when I have an average quarterback and I'm, you know, I'm starting from, from um, ground zero. Yeah, dude, like this is one of the reasons I wanted, you know, I was so happy to do this podcast and we think so alike because that was exactly what I said. You kind of want to build a good offensive line. And you, like, I think, and the point that you brought up, like elite receivers get maximized with elite quarterbacks. Like I think for, for an average quarterback, like you kind of just want to surround them with three to four average to above average or good receivers. Like, I don't think you need to spend top dollar for a Tyree kill instead of spending uh, 30 million, which is like all funny money, instead of spending really like 24, 25 million on one receiver, you can spend 25 on two or even three, or, and then you draft one or two in, in the early, like in the second or third round. And then you have a decent receiving core because, you know, these type of, these type of quarterbacks, most of them are pretty accurate. They're not really mobile. So they have to be pretty accurate to be in the NFL playing, you know, without that type of mobility and ability to expect, extend plays. Also having a good offensive line, uh, leads to less, most likely less pressured pockets, which, you know, throwing from a non-pressured pocket is mostly always positive EPA, throwing from a pressured pocket for every quarterback in the NFL, except, you know, the great ones like Justin Herbert or Mahomes will always result in negative EPA. So you want to try to limit those type of negative plays on offense, which you can do with a good or great offensive line. And I think it's, if you have to hire like a coach, a head coach or an offensive coordinator, like you are specifically a head coach, 
if you have an average quarterback, I feel like you want to target a good head coach more often because a good head coach scheming open their, their receivers um, will also lead to uh, more success on offense because the quarterback will be able to get it there. And then with a good offensive line, they will have the time to kind of go through their progressions and use their experience to their advantage. So I, I do agree. I think starting with a good offensive line is, is probably the way to go. And then um, kind of like spending here and there on receiver to where you're kind of, you have depth, but it's not all like focused on one elite or like really, really good receiver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely agree. And I think with the rise of too high, which we talked about on episode two, having secondary receiving options is going to become even more important because you know, with, with, with two safeties up there, they can take away, you know, the, the outside receivers or the top two receiving options, the ones that usually give you explosive plays. Um, and you know, that's what the defense is built to stop. So if you have, a you know, a really good slot receiver or like a tight end that can get open, you know, shake off a linebacker or, you know, make a contested catch against a, a corner that they might have a size advantage on that can do wonders for your offense. And especially, you know, if you have a quarterback that isn't going to, you know, elevate the, the receiving talent that they have, like having, you know, multiple options to throw to, I think is, is going to be really good for them. And, um, and that, you know, it's, it's different things like that, where you can, you can kind of find, yeah, value with, like you mentioned, like in the draft, um, you know, the, the amount of increase in wide receiver talent that has entered the draft lately has been really good. And with this off season being like the off season for wide receivers to just get paid like $20 million a year or more, I think it becomes more advantageous to, you know, start drafting receivers, multiple receivers in, in the draft, instead of, you know, having to go out and pay, uh, Tyree Kill, Devontae Adams, Christian Kirk, um, like all those types of receivers that got big contracts this offseason because I'd rather just take a receiver in the first and a receiver in the fourth and hope one of them work out compared to that. And if not, that's okay because they're not getting that much money. You're not hamstring to them like you are with these other, other receivers. Yeah, and I think, so like the optimal thing is you just draft well. Like, you know, you know in the NBA Finals, like it's kind of like a joke, but like, you know, the, the Warriors offense was just so good. And like the, the solution for Boston's like, just make shots. Right. Yeah. It's like in the NFL, just like draft well, and you'll be successful. And, and it goes, it goes to show, like if you draft well, you have a lot of good players on these cost control deals that you'll be able to afford to maybe like be able to pay this type of average quarterback, because you're not really allocating a ton of money to good players elsewhere on the, on the roster. Well, I think where you get stuck is like, if you have a lot of holes on the roster, you can't really fill these holes in free agency because you don't have the money because of all the money you're spending at quarterback. So I think that goes to show like even like trading back, like you have such a higher chance of, of getting these cost controlled players. Whereas like if you have a quarterback on a rookie deal, I don't think you really need to worry about, you know, finding good players as much because, you know, you have the money to go out and fill holes in free agency, as we saw with teams like the Bengals um, and the Chargers this year. Um, and, you know, like kind of like last resort, which kind of transitions into our last stage of this conversation is like, if you have like, if you have a Super Bowl ready roster, the last resort could be, you know, trading for a quarterback that could put you over the edge. So going from Baker Mayfield to um, Deshaun Watson, going from Jared Goff to Matthew Stafford, um, you, you, I think you could trade potentially trade for a tier three quarterback. If you know they have the right tail that can win you three or four straight games in the playoffs. Otherwise 
if they don't have that variance, if they don't have that right tail, you're kind of relying a lot on your defense or rushing attack to be elite, to put up points and, and beat these like good defensive schemes that you'll see in the playoffs. Yeah. That I think that's like the problem with tier three quarterbacks is that they don't have the right tail. Like, um, you know, something we'll, we'll talk about with a reef later in the episode is like Matthew Stafford and Kirk cousins have pretty similar, like means or medians when it comes to quarterback play. Right. But but Stafford's lows are going to be really low. Uh, he's going to throw multiple interceptions, you know, miss, miss, uh, you know, uh, open receivers sometimes with accuracy issues. Cousins doesn't have any of that. Cousins is like too consistent where he'll just, he'll do the same thing every single week, but he's not going to make as many big time throws, tight window throws, push the ball downfield. Um, and that's why, you know, Stafford was able to go with, with, you know, consider, I mean, the team was, was stacked too, but, you know, take, elevate that team that, you know, was, was in 2020 was basically carried by their defense. Defense took a step back in 2021 offense took a huge step forward, you know, first in, in passing EPA per play. And then, you know, was able to win the super bowl with, without a run game really in, in the playoffs. And, um, and yeah, I thought it was interesting that Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan both decided in the same off season that they can't keep playing Madden anymore with their <laughs> quarterbacks. Right. Like, like, you know, McVeigh like had to, you know, he wanted to get into more seven step drop back concepts that they were running a lot of, you know, five receiver sets that he couldn't do with golf because golf couldn't stretch the field. Kyle Shanahan decided like he couldn't keep doing this with, with Jimmy G, um, you know, traded three first round picks to go up and get Trey Lance. And, you know, he, Trey Lance is going to add a lot to his run game diversity, which is already very diverse. And he's hoping can add some to his uh, passing game as well. So, you know, I think, you know, the 49ers were a little stingy when they were negotiating with the lions for Stafford and if Stafford's on their team last year, you know, they, 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 you know, might, might've won the super bowl. They, they would have had higher chance to win it than mm -hmm. with Jimmy G and Trey Lance. So, um, you know, it's different stuff like that, where these teams do have to figure out when they have an average quarterback, how they want to go about getting an upgrade at that position. Once they feel like their roster is ready. Yeah. Um, before I kind of like pose the final question, um, I, I think the Trey Lance thing is so interesting. Like we obviously had a discussion last week or two weeks ago about, um, you know, kind of like ranking these uh, first, second and third year quarterbacks with Lance, like the, the offense could be so like Lamar like or like Ravens like obviously the, the way that the, the run schemes are much different. It's a wide zone scheme or a zone scheme versus a like a man power scheme in, in Baltimore. But if Lance it runs that offense in such a way that it, you know, defenses are forced to um, acknowledge and respect it, which they always do with Shanahan scheme. Like, I feel like when, when the, when the Ravens played the chargers in the playoffs, like three years ago, everyone thought that the way to stop the Ravens was to play light boxes and just go like dime personnel or like uh, really fast personnel. Like, I'm curious what the, the, progression would be to stop Trey Lance and the Niners like is it adding an extra man in the box because if you add an extra man you're just going to get killed on play action because that's Shanahan's specialty so you know that the point you brought up I think that's super interesting what Shanahan does with with Lance in the run game and the play action game but you know final uh, my final question on this idea is there's been a lot of like talk about what do you do if you don't have a quarterback on a rookie deal or an average quarterback on a rookie deal and you don't have an elite quarterback that can play um, and and make or 
that has the play to justify giving them a top of the market deal. If you don't have any of those quarterbacks, what do you do? And should you like ever even consider signing a tier three quarterback or any quarterback in like the Kirk tier? Yeah, I think, so I think the Panthers are a good example of how not to do things <laughs> with this type of stuff. Like when Matt rule first got there, why did they sign Teddy Bridgewater? Like, just like, just like accept that you're going to be bad for a year, put yourself in the conversation to get a top quarterback that's, that's coming out of the, the draft or whatever. Right. Or, you know, just, just like, just get a, a bridge quarterback. That's, that's, you know, average or you know below average enough where at least you know which wide receivers are like good on your team and you know like if your offense can even function at the nfl level but like don't go out and sign a teddy bridgewater type that will you know rank like 20th in epa per play and put you at uh six and 11 or five and 12 or something like like just just the first year that you get there you should just accept that you're going to be really bad and try not to um, to, you know, increase your, your floor in, because you have to look at the long-term outlook of things and know that, you know, you can make minus EV moves, uh, in year N so that it's plus EV in year N plus one and years N mm -hmm. plus two. Yeah. That that's kind of my thinking. If you don't have, if you don't have either of those, like two types of quarterbacks I listed, then you should try to try to set yourself up to get a quarterback that will give you average production on a rookie deal or, or better, obviously. Um, I, I think the, I think the interesting thing is like, I don't think it's like a definite, you have to have one of these two types of quarterbacks. There's definitely scenarios where you could win with a tier three quarterback. I mean, hell the Niners made it to the conference championship twice with Jimmy G on a non rookie deal. And ultimately I think it comes down to a lot of like internal self-evaluation um, if you really know you have a Super Bowl roster outside of quarterback, you could, you know, there's a lot of things that have to go your way with, with injuries and, um, and kind of playing, not playing like the hardest opponents. I mean, the, the, the Niners, uh, were bad in 2020. So they had an easier schedule in 2021. Obviously they barely snuck into the playoffs, but that, that stuff kind of does matter. Um, but if you know, you have like a Super Bowl winning roster outside of quarterback, like you use like Mike Clay's like unit grades, um, and, and you see like maybe you're in like the top 10 or the top eight, obviously teams don't use, or I'm not going to say what they do and don't use, but if you have that type of roster, I think it's okay to maybe take a chance on rolling with a Kirk Cousins or um, like a Matt Ryan with, with like what the Colts are doing. But I also think if you not, if you don't have that roster, like I don't think the Vikings have the roster, you should just embrace the mystery. Like you should go out and, and let cousins walk, you know, let him play out this year. And then you just go into the draft and you find someone like most of the times, like you're going to get surplus value on a, on a QB deal. I think you should try to embrace that. Now, obviously we, as we will show in our talk with the reef, that's a very tough decision. You know, GMs will get fired for making that type of decision and it doesn't work out in their favor. So it's, it's a very tough decision from a football and mental um, perspective. You know, you obviously have to respect the kind of work they do. They're in the NFL for a reason. But I think sometimes you have to be able to take that chance and and kind of embrace what is like the, the darkness in, in quarterback evaluation, whether it is veterans or, or rookies in the draft. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why, like what Howie Roseman did is like is, he's like executed this basically like perfectly. Right. Like he had Carson Wentz um, and, you know, Wentz was was really good in 2019. 
then he was he was or sorry he was really good in uh 2017 then he was like you know pretty good after that but he was like when he saw Jalen Hurts uh you know in in the draft in the second round knowing what you know he had his report on him and he he wanted to you know get get that type of quarterback in case Wentz didn't work out uh 2021 showed you know it wasn't working out there and then you know Hertz is now one of the best values in the league taking up less than one percent of the Eagles salary cap to be an average quarterback which is great and then he you know Wentz still had the value from that you know almost MVP season if he didn't get injured so then he Howie Roseman traded Wentz for more than what he should have been gotten at the on the open market then hired an offensive-minded head coach, which you touched on earlier with how, how it was so important for him that, you know, that could change the scheme to fit his quarterback, right? Like I was talking mm-hmm. to someone who's who's very plugged into the league, and he said that he kind of heard Sirianni uh, in like a perfect world would want to pass like 65, 70% of the time on early downs if he could, but that's not what Hurts' game is suited for. You know, Hurts can give you the best run game in the league. So that's what Sirianni did, you know, after midway through the season when and they changed the um the scheme and then and then he's always planned for the future as well right like giving up a first round pick an extra first round pick this year with, to trade with the saints to have an extra one next year when the quarterback class is going to be really loaded there could be someone available in in the you know on the trade block like roseman has perfectly balanced you know building right now by trading for aj brown having a top 5 offensive line uh and and getting some good additions on defense uh, coupled with you know having like the the resources in the future to move on from Hertz so that you don't have to pay him because Hertz is totally fine where he's at right now but mm. once you have to pay him 30 million dollars a year that team isn't going to look as good as it as it currently is yeah I don't think anyone is denying that or people shouldn't be denying that Howie Roseman is kind of a wizard when when it comes to making these type of forward-thinking decisions um but you know today has been great uh I think you know this was a really helpful discussion and We'll transition now into our interview with Arif Hassan from The Athletic. We're now very excited to be joined by Arif Hassan, Vikings writer at The Athletic. Um, Arif, you know, one of the things we like to do on the podcast is kind of share uh, one of our favorite things about our guests. Um, I first found out about you in, in 2021 when you put together your infamous consensus big board that you do every year for The Athletic. And I thought it was a really cool way for people like me to see kind of all the different opinions on players without having to go to each website or analyst page to do so. So I really appreciate you for that. Um, first off, you know, how, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. Kind of weird that you're like sharing compliments. But I mean, all I've done is insult Tej on Twitter. So <laughs> <laughs> this is like, it's pretty interesting. But no, I'm, I'm having a good day. How are you all? Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I debated whether I wanted to do my compliment as well, given the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the insults I usually I usually receive on Twitter. But you know, you were you were big for me when I was just getting started and I was like, oh good, there's another brown guy who's really into this stuff too. Like I'm like made me feel, you know, less imposter syndrome there. And you know, I've especially enjoyed your articles last year on like Josh Allen and Justin Herbert's regression and you know, like talking about the different factors that go into unstable play and everything. But, you know, I want to, I want to talk about the the quarterback that you cover and, you know, when, when Kirk Cousins is getting propped up, like by, by like CBS sports or like other accounts like that, like 
stats will be thrown out that be like, oh, like quarterbacks that have done this, like X, Y, and Z are only Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, and Kirk Cousins. And like the other two will usually be like really elite. And then Cousins kind of gets thrown in. They're like, why do you think that happens so often with these types of stats? Um, So this happens a lot more in basketball, I've noticed, than in football. Uh, because instead of like four stats, you've got like five stats and uh, they can happen, um, you know, per game or per stretch because there's 82 games in a season. Uh, and so you'll end up with like these lists. It's like, yeah, uh, you know, these are the only three players to have like 15 blocks, 15 points and 10 assists in a game. Right. Uh, per, like for like, you know, over the average of three games. And it's like three Hall of Famers and like Seth Curry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like that's what happens when you like bring together these statistics is that every additional statistic that you bring in especially accounting statistic every additional statistic that you bring in that is loosely correlated with the other statistics the more you're going to kind of narrow down the field and um generally speaking the better you are and kind of the higher level of volume you have in those statistics like if you get if you get 10 blocks in the game you're probably really good right if you average it over three games you're probably extremely good right um so generally they're really good indicators of quality and value but you're searching for it because a surprise player did it right like seth curry what maybe i chose blocks was the wrong one but like seth curry doing it you know is like notable and you'd like look it up and and if if your starting point of searching for a statistic is someone surprising, then you're going to end up in a situation where you're going to compare a relatively mediocre player um, to a bunch of elite players like that. And the statistic only gets published because it's interesting. Right. It's it's kind of like, you know, the publishing bias in science journals. Right. It's like if you know, if the hypothesis is interesting, it gets, you know, it gets published or rather if the conclusion is interesting. Right. Um, if you prove the null, um, you know, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's kind of like that, but, but on Twitter. Right. And so you end up with a quarterback that is pretty good in terms of, you know, his on-field play and his ability to kind of generate some like high level statistics. Um, and then you kind of can like, cause this, this, uh, this stat that just went like viral on CBS sports um, it was like yards and touchdowns. Right. Like, I don't think they'd included any of the, like, Okay, fine. But like it doesn't include attempts, it doesn't include error adjustments, it doesn't include interceptions, right? It doesn't include sacks, right? All of these are important elements of quarterback play that interact with the other elements of those statistics that produce your, your quarterback value, right? Um, and so for it was like Dan Marino, Peyton Manning, and Kirk Cousins, which is like wild, right? But if you included like sack percentage, like Peyton Manning and Dan Marino are in their own cat, like they're you know like worlds away from cousins and sack percentage. Right. Um, and that was a really important element of how they generated value. And part of the reason that they were able to, to get to the playoffs so often. Right. So um, these statistics were generated because they're interesting. And then you can kind of narrow it down. I mean, last decade, you would be, you, you'd see that with Tony Romo, right? It's like, Oh, well, look at all these guys that have had a hundred plus pass rating seasons over three seasons. And it's like Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, Dan Marino, Tony Romo, right? It's like the same thing, right? You're only looking it up because a guy that seems unlikely to have hit some sort of elite threshold is hitting what you consider to be an elite threshold. And then you're kind of manipulating your search terms um, to kind of find it. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's fun to share, but, you know, people draw too much meaning from it, which I guess is why, you know, it's so shareable. Yeah. Uh, sticking on the, the theme of Kirk Cousins, 
Do you think that Cousins has been given uh, a good enough supporting cast to where we can kind of look at the lack of offensive success the Vikings have had, you know, 15th in EPA per play, uh, around 11th, 12th in EPA per dropback since 2018 when they signed Cousins and kind of attribute that to Kirk's kind of like failure to elevate this offense and do what he was paid to do? Uh, a little bit. You know, I, I think that it's always uh, appropriate to kind of give context, right? Like if the offense is 15th in EPA per play, but the quarterback is eighth in EPA per dropback, that sounds like a play caller problem to me, right? Um, so that that clearly is part of it, right? And obviously Cousins has had um, really high-level elements in some of his supporting cast uh, and really low-level elements otherwise, right? Because you, you can point to that receiver group, which some years was the top receiver group in the NFL, right? Like it, it was either Thielen and Diggs or Thielen and, and Jefferson, right? Plus KJ Osborne this last year was really fine wide receiver three to have. Um, and you take a look at that and you go like, well, how could you possibly argue that this guy is a poor supporting cast? Meanwhile, they're like regularly 28th, 29th, 30th in like ESPN's pass block win rate, right? Which is um, a pretty good measure. I, I don't think we have a great measure, but a pretty good measure of offensive pass blocking quality, right? And so you've got these extremes and it could be the case that, you know, uh, I, I don't know what the, what the data says about this, but it could be the case that if all of your elements are average, you're in a better spot than if you've got one element that's elite and one element that's at the bottom of the barrel, that could be the case, right? And in, in which case, you know, it'd be appropriate to, I think, modify, you know, our conclusions about a quarterback and conclusions about how to build an offense. But um, without that knowledge, if we just assume that maybe these even out or something like that, um, I, I would say that we have a lot of really good data on how good Cousins is at leading an offense. And the suggestion here, the data tells us that he is pretty good, right? Uh, the problem is in terms of like the contract demands and, and his ability to kind of chew up team resources um, kind of demands he be better than that. And so, um you know, the, the most important elements, uh, according to kind of the, the most relevant recent data that we have, tell us that, you know, wide receiver is more important than any other element of an offensive supporting cast. And I, I tend to believe that based off of like the things that I see, right? Like the Chiefs, a lot of people, you know, talk about how the Chiefs had a bad offensive line and then lost the Super Bowl, but like they got there, right? Like, like I feel like yeah. that's pretty relevant. They had a really great set of receivers to help, you know, the best quarterback in the NFL do that. Um, I think that if you're an elite quarterback, that will show out in some capacity, regardless of your supporting cast. You can modify your expectations based off of what that supporting cast is, right? I think you can be an elite quarterback and be like eighth in EPA because you've got a really bad supporting cast. But I think it's unlikely that you're an elite quarterback and you're like 20th in EPA, right? I, I think that that is an almost impossible scenario to produce. And, and so at some level, the quality of quarterback you have provides a floor regardless of the supporting cast that's available to you in terms of how well that offense can be performing. Uh, and, uh, and I think that with cousins, we're, we're almost hitting that just because, um, you know, the offensive line has gotten better over time and the offense has gotten a little bit better over time. It was like 10th in EPA per dropback last year, something like that. It, it was not bad last year. Um, but you know, it's, if, if he's consuming like $40 million in cap space, then I, for who, for what, like, what, what are we doing here? So um, he's a, he's a really good quarterback. He's better than most quarterbacks in the NFL. And that is evident. Um, the supporting cast question is interesting, but it really only kind of tweaks our evaluation of him at the margins. Um, really what matters is kind of how many resources he's 
you know, taking away from other elements of the team that, that might make the team better. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. And that's a great answer. And, you know, you touched on kind of like receiving options being the most important thing for, for a quarterback success. Like, can you expand a little bit more on, on why you think uh, investing in, in receivers is more important than, you know, investing in a good offensive line or different things that could help support the quarterback also? Yeah, I, I think that there's like two ways to look at it that could lead you to that conclusion. One, I think, is, you know, kind of following, you know, the the direction that the data goes. And then the other way is kind of thinking about how an offensive play operates when, when a quarterback drops back. Um, that first one, you know, I'm not crazy qualified. You know, I didn't graduate college, so <laughs> I'm not like a statistician or anything like that. But, you know, I know how to read and and I'm not bad at numbers. And so I've been able to kind of, you know mess around with like R online and, you know, figure out kind of what the Excel spreadsheet is telling me. And it seems like based off of the stuff that like Eric Eager is putting out based off the stuff that some other people like um, other people at Sports Info Solutions are putting out. Um, it tells us that generally speaking, that if you have the ability to kind of test what happens when an elite player is taken away from an offense, when an above average player is taken away from an offense, when an average player is taken away from an offense, what impact that has versus a replacement level player in that offense when you put that player in. Right. And over a, a large enough sample, which, you know, the PFF data um, robustly, I think, goes back to 2006. Um, they've got, you know, some individual, you know, player seasons graded all the way back to like 94 or something crazy like that. But robustly, the data goes back to 2006. And I think that that's really good in terms of our ability to kind of pull players out of a data set, put players back into a data set, kind of see what happens. And it tells us that generally speaking, I want to be clear that this is pretty general. I wouldn't be shocked if there were quarterback specific factors that generally speaking, uh, offensive play callers matter, but they don't matter as much as receivers, right? Um, that offensive linemen matter, but they don't matter as much as receivers, just because um, they receivers have the ability to uncap a play in terms of what level of, let's say, expected points that you can get on a particular play design. If you design a really good play and you've got bad receivers, you're done, right? They're not going to get open. You can't get rid of the ball. If you design a poor play and you've got uh, really great receivers, um, then you can have moments where like, you know, the Stefan Diggs, you know, Minneapolis miracle, right? Like that play. And that wasn't a bad play. It was actually a pretty good play design, but that play meant for Stefan Diggs to go out of bounds to set up a, a field goal kick, which would have been traumatic for Vikings fans, honestly. <laughs> um, but instead Diggs was a good enough receiver to, uh, you know, create all those additional yards and get a touchdown off of that play. Like you can get, you can uncap the expected points generated off of the medium, good outcome of a play or median, good outcome of a play with a great receiver, uh, either through their ability to generate uh, more than expected separation or their ability to generate yards after the catch or their ability to win contested catches, which I know that's a bit unstable, but I think, you know, qualitatively we can tell which receivers are generally pretty good. Uh, contested catch winners, even if quantitatively we're having a little bit of trouble with that. Um, but I do think that there is some level of nuance here. Actually, let me talk about the second element, which is kind of how an offensive play functions. Um, the other way that you can tell if receivers matter is you can mitigate the impact that an offensive line has. I'm not going to say fairly easily, but a lot easier than the other way around by designing plays that uh, get rid of the ball quicker. And if you design a play that gets rid of the ball quicker, you better have a good receiver that can get open quickly, which admittedly is a different skill set than getting open on an intermediate play. So you can't just say good receiver does X, Y, Z uniformly. You need a receiver, for example, a really good release off the line of scrimmage. But a good receiver allows you to get rid of the ball quickly if pressure is coming, whereas a bad receiver doesn't. 
Um, a good receiver uh, will get open kind of almost regardless of the length of the play. The longer the play, the more likely they are to get open, of course. Um, but an offensive line that generates additional time for you to get the ball out will not let you get the ball to a bad receiver who is not going to get separation, drops the ball, telegraphs the route, um, runs at the wrong depth, you know, those sorts of things. And so uh, an offensive line can, to some extent, make up for bad receivers because you increase the probability that someone's going to be open later on in the play, but there are just elements that the receiver is ultimately in control of. So that's kind of how mechanistically a play works. I do think that there is some level of nuance in terms of the way that a quarterback plays, right? Because if a quarterback is always getting rid of the ball quickly, then that offensive line kind of almost doesn't matter. You know, a player like Jimmy Garoppolo, I think is a really good example, that he seems to get rid of the ball quickly regardless of how good that offensive line in front of him is, which has to be frustrating for somebody like Kyle Shanahan, right? Because you cannot design certain plays um, because he just wants to get rid of the ball quickly, even though like for a a long period of time, San Francisco had a really good offensive line and he was just like, I'm I'm not interested in that fact. Um, So, you know, that, that in that case, you know, a receiver would magnify importance for that, which is why I think Debo Samuel is right to just be like, I please just, pay me as soon as possible, as much as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very clear how important receivers are in the passing offense in San Francisco. Other quarterbacks will hold on to the ball almost regardless. Uh, an example of a good quarterback, and I want to say, to be clear, on field, I don't want to make you know this all the time, but you know Deshaun Watson, regardless of you know whether or not we're going to be able to see him this year, regardless of whether or not kind of the moral character is somebody that you know should be playing football, is a quarterback that is probably the best example of someone characterized by somebody who likes to hold on to the ball a long time and uh, will take advantage of that to create deep shots downfield, which can create obviously some exciting moments, but puts a lot of stress on that offensive line. We've seen Deshaun Watson with a bad offensive line. We've seen him with a good off. Well, I shouldn't say good offensive line, but a much better offensive line. And he clearly performs a lot better with that better offensive line. And I, and the quality of receivers that he's had aside from Deandre Hopkins, which he didn't have, you know, that full, full gamut of time, um, has not been remarkable. And he's been able to produce when DeAndre Hopkins has not been available to him in part because, you know, a receiver like Will Fuller, who I don't regard as an elite, you know, receiver or anything like that, has more capability to get open because of the time that Deshaun Watson buys for him. Um, now you've got quarterbacks that are somewhere in between. Somebody like Teddy Bridgewater, for example, holds onto the ball forever and then throws it like seven yards. <laughs> um, you know, he needs a really good offensive line, but he also like needs really good receivers. So that one is kind of complicated. Whereas you've got, you know, quarterbacks that have the ability to kind of modify their approach based off of the time that they perceive that they have somebody like a Matthew Stafford, for example, is a really good example of that, who um, will get rid of the ball quickly when he has a bad offensive line and will hold on to the ball when he's got a good offensive line. And it kind of produce, Tez, you're smiling so much right now. It's so funny, but he, he does modify the amount of time he holds onto the ball based off of the pass protection he's expected to receive with the play design. So it, it is different for different quarterbacks. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, Timo from, from PFF kind of looked at how receivers get open as a function of time to throw. And as QBs hold on to the ball longer, it, there's a higher chance that a, a receiver gets open. So that's a great point there. Um, I want to, I want to focus on, um, the idea of like team building, um, you know, we, we're all like Twitter warriors and, you know, we all have like our opinions and share that like, Oh, we would do this if we were the GM or that, but in your opinion, since you cover the team, like how tough is it to let someone like Kirk cousins walk, especially since he has like a relatively stable floor that he gives a team, like letting him walk and kind of embracing the mystery of free agency or, or drafting a quarterback or signing like a Jameis Winston, or if there is a Jameis Winston on the market, like how tough is, is giving up that, that floor to try and chase a a higher ceiling? Uh, A part of it has to do with like the general manager themselves, right? 
if I'm making $400,000 a year and I'm putting like three of my like five kids through college based off of my salary, right? And I've got the option between holding out of this quarterback that I could probably convince myself can at least take me to the playoffs, if not win a Super Bowl, um, and extend my job security for three or four years. So, you know, now I'm looking at, you know, $1.2 million. Um, or uh, I'm going to take a risk of the vagaries of the market, try to draft a quarterback. No one's good at drafting quarterbacks, regardless of what people say. Um, and, uh, and, and bet my kid's college fund on this guy that might get me fired in, you know, two years, as opposed to cousins, that's going to at least extend my career by four years, if not longer. Um, I'm losing out on $800,000. Like, you know, I, I don't want to make that choice. Right. And so I, the, this is, I think it's called the principal agent problem, Right where uh, the team's best interests and the actor's best interest that controls the outcomes of the team are at odds, right? Because the team is a persistent quality. The general manager is not. The general manager can change and for the Vikings just did. Um, and so, uh, you know, Spielman has been actually really good at this because he's held on to the job. I mean, he, he you know, joined the Vikings in 2006 as a member of like a, a three-part triangle of authority with no clear you know, general manager. And in 2012, he got elevated to general manager. And how many general managers have had a job for a decade, right? Like that, that doesn't happen very often. So he's very good at understanding this. Um, the Vikings have also not won a Super Bowl, right? <laughs> like, like, you know, having one general manager who I think generally speaking is actually a good general manager uh, hasn't been enough because I think that part of it is that you take a look at a team, you, you evaluate that you've got, you know, quote unquote window, and uh, you want to, you know, squeeze as much juice as you can out of that. I mean, that's why the Vikings, you know, they went all in for uh, Brett Favre from 2009 because they knew how good that 2008 team was. And during the 2009 season, they saw signs that that team was aging. It was extremely good, right? I mean, the team went like 13 and three, right? It's an extremely good team. But they saw signs that team was aging, even when you take Favre kind of out of the equation, right? Like Steve Hutchinson is there and he's this Hall of Fame guard that is clearly kind of slipping in some areas. His injuries are accumulating, right? You've got Jared Allen who, you know, Hall of Fame defensive end, injuries are accumulating. He's slowing down. Kevin Williams, you know, Hall of Very Good defensive tackle, right? You know, you've got, you know, these incredible players that are all like, not just veterans, but like super veterans, right? And, and you know that at some point you're just going to have to let go. And then you make it to the NFC Championship game and you're like one play away uh, from from making it to the Super Bowl. And honestly, I don't know that Brett Favre would have been healthy enough to play that Super Bowl. But you convince yourself as a general manager, right, that um, you know you were one play away. And and so Brett Favre, whose ankle basically exploded during the during the game against the Saints, um, they they go down and they beg Brett Favre to come back. They they extend or resign all these old veterans. And they, and they try for like one more bite at the apple. And it, obviously it doesn't work, right? And I don't know, like that's obviously the most extreme example of it, but I don't know that if you're in that situation, you can do anything else, even though it's very obvious that the team was kind of in a uh, last ride scenario. And there are just versions of seeing, you know, windows open and close, right? You take a look at um, last year's Vikings team, right? The 2021 Vikings. Um, and I... Uh, if you're in control and your job security relies on this team being good, 
I don't like, it's so easy to convince yourself this team is good, right? Because you take a look at that offense. It's like whatever in EPA per, per whatever. Right. Um, you know, that that offense is like, I don't know, like 10th in points or something like that. You know, the offense is like pretty good. It's better than an average offense. You've got a quarterback that's better than the average quarterback. You've got really great receivers. Maybe you have to tweak some things along the offensive line. And obviously, you know, running backs win Super Bowls and you've got a great running back, right? Like, you know, that as the general manager, that's something that, you know, um, and then also on the defensive side of the ball, you've got one of the greatest defensive minds of, of this generation coaching a defense that, yeah, it's young, but Hey, you know, 2020 was the season that all the young players needed to kind of learn their lessons. Now it's 2021. And you've got, you know, a, a defensive back whisper. I don't know how you don't convince yourself that you've got at least a shot. And if you've got a shot, um, you're taking a gamble on, you know, whether or not I blow this up and get fired in a year, year and a half, or, um, if I make the playoffs, you know, this team is good enough to make the playoffs. If I make the playoffs, you know, that's another $800,000 over the next two years in my pocket. So yeah, it is extraordinarily difficult to make that decision. And part of that is because job security relies on it. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that, yeah, it is really difficult to, to find a quarterback and it's just inherent in human nature, um, to favor, I don't know, bleak certainty over uh, massive uncertainty. That's just kind of like, you know, we're risk averse. Um, I don't really believe in most evolutionary psychology theories, because I think most of them are bunk, but I think, you know, one that, one that, you know, posits that humans are risk averse because it's positive evolutionary strategy, I could buy into, right? You know, I think most Evo psych is bad, but that, that one I could buy. Yeah. See, this is, this is why I want, I was so excited for you to come on throwing out principal agent problem, psychology principles, like risk aversion, like all that stuff. That's, that's really good. And, you know, staying on like the topic of, of, you know, general managers and stuff like, you know, Quasi uh, getting hired this this past year um, was was really cool to to see someone with like an analytics background get such a big role. Like, how do you what do you kind of think about the job he's done so far? Um, have you noticed him using like analytical principles in in the way he's operated the Vikings? Yeah, uh, so he has been pretty shy in terms of talking about how he wants to deploy analytical principles. Like it's very clear that that's his background. It's very clear that this is something that he, you know, loves to do and he loves to solve problems. And, and the way that he solves problems is by taking a look at all the available data and, and trying to follow, you know, the, the probability maximizing path, right. Which is, I, th I don't think it's a phrase he's ever used, but it's very clearly what he's attempting to get across. Right. Because he talks about like, um, you know, one of the phrases that he uses is that, you know, when you're in the draft, you're making a bunch of bets on players and the goal of analytics or any other form of data gathering for the draft is to put the odds in your side because you want to be the house, right? It's very obvious that the way that he approaches a lot of this thinking is very probabilistic, right? And I love that. It's something that I, I understand and can relate to and can talk about and write about and, you know, understand and, and figure out, right? Like it's very good for me as a writer. It's also just like, I would like to see a team employees principles just to see how that kind of plays out. Um, and, and from that perspective, yeah, I, I guess that that is what he's doing, but it is difficult to get a clear beat on what his thought process is for any individual decision that he makes. Right. And, and I understand why he wouldn't explain that, but it does make it difficult for me to evaluate it. Right. Like if I, it, you know, when Zadarius Smith gets signed, you know, I, I need to know like, Hey, what, what certainty do you have about his health going forward? What models do you have that indicate that a player that has only produced at an elite level once in his career can do it again at this age, right? Like, I would love to be able to ask those questions to get honest answers, right? Because I think those are, you know, some of the primary questions surrounding the Jerry Smith signing. He's had one year of 100 plus pressures, two years of 60 plus pressures uh, in addition to that, right? And nothing besides that because he's a rotational player in Baltimore. Um, you know, what, 
do, are you confident that this guy who had a back injury that kept him out of everything but the first and last game of the season is going to be able to even reach, you know, something like 60 plus pressures, much less 100 plus? Um, you're kind of trying to sell us this team that has, you know, Daniel Hunter and Darius Smith, the two pressure leaders in the NFL, at least for PFF. I think also SIS. I think they agreed that year um, in 2019. But it's 2022, like that was three years ago by the time the season begins. Right. So you're trying to basically sell us on this vision. Um, what likelihood do you think that you can uh, realize this vision? Right. And I'm not going to get an answer from him, but um, I take a look at kind of the way the team is constructed. I've got a lot of criticisms. Right. There's some criticisms that are that are less analytically inclined, like, for example, uh, you know, drafting Ed Ingram with kind of all the off-field stuff surrounding mm-hmm. him, I didn't really love. I think from an analytics perspective, it wasn't a great pick either, but um, you, you tend to throw a lot of that out the door when it comes to offensive linemen. I think every team basically does that except maybe the Browns, and, you know, they've ended up with a pretty good offensive line over the year, so, you know, maybe that's worth evaluating. But, you know, you tend to defer to your offensive line coach. Um, so uh, taking a look at a lot of those decisions, it, it's difficult to figure out kind of, what the end goal is, because if you've got a probabilistic out, uh, outlook on how you're going to solve problems, I need to know what problem you're solving to really evaluate it. And, you know, put very simply, it would be to win a Super Bowl. But it's very clear also that he is attempting not to win a Super Bowl this year, but also maybe, you know, three years down the line, because I don't think they did everything they could to put a good supporting cast around Cousins. I don't think they did as much as they could to make sure that the team this year was going to be as good as possible. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I don't think they did as much as they could to make sure that this team is set up to win two, three years down the line. I think they did a lot of things that impact their ability to win going forward in order to win now, right? Which is a you know it's a sacrifice that you have to make as a choice that you make as a general manager. And uh, you know the Vikings have been trying to ride this line of you know being very forward about building for the future while attempting to win now, and that doesn't seem all that different to me than Rick Spielman, right? They've been doing they've been doing this thing since like 2017, right? Where they've tried to build for the future and also try to build now and it hasn't worked for them. And so I don't know kind of what metrics um, or a- metrics is maybe the wrong word, but what end goal he is building his metrics of success towards, right? Like if he drafts, you know, they drafted a sixth round receiver, right? Jalen Naylor, who is primarily a return, right? Um, it's it's Valus Jones, but younger and three rounds later. Um, you know, he's, he's trying to, you know, like, how do I evaluate the success of that pick? Because if that pick doesn't come online for two, three years, that's a phenomenal outcome for a sixth round pick. Right. But also like it it is a punt return of the Vikings don't have one. Should I attempt to see if that is an attempt to win now? Are you trying to fill needs now? Um, There's a lot of decisions that he's made over the past, you know, couple of weeks where I don't really know to what end goal he's attempting to build towards. And if he's trying to walk a line, that is a very muddy, outcome to measure yourself against. And so it's very difficult to build a probabilistic model that moves you towards that. But I can tell you that he he speaks the language and, and not just in the way that that Spielman spoke the language. Spielman liked analytics, but he clearly didn't understand like a lot, which is fine. Like most people don't. It's nerd stuff. Don't don't be interested. Stop doing it. But um, you know, I understand you know where he's coming from. Whereas with Quasi, um he he very intimately understands the principles at play. And sometimes he'll slip and say something that I don't think he meant to say that also reveals that he thought really deeply about some of these issues. You know, he talked for a little bit about systems theory, 
right? Which is like, you know, it's multidisciplinary. It's very academic. I mean, you can draw from, you know, ecologists and economists and political scientists and sociologists and, you know, kind of build a systems theory that builds on, you know, complex interrelated factors that, you know, Karl Marx and, uh, you know, Nozick both loved, right? Which is crazy. You don't really find those two agreeing on anything. Um, and, and so uh, to kind of build on concepts like that, when you're attempting to think about a team, really does show like a deep understanding in a way that's not superficial. I think a lot of general managers um, across a bunch of sports that have received a bunch of praise for being analytics forward show a very superficial understanding of the way that it should organize your thought processes. And I don't think that's true of Quasi. Um, so I, I think that he has that element there that is really nice, but whether or not those individual decisions kind of match up to that vision, that is very difficult for me to evaluate. Yeah, no, that was a great answer. And we're obviously as analytics people looking forward to hopefully him succeeding a little bit in, in Minnesota. Um, Arif, this has been great. Um, you know, we like to wrap up with a, with a fun question for all our guests. So on football Twitter, we have all of the the blank guys. So like Seth Galina is kind of like the Herbert guy. Maybe it's Steven Ruiz now. I don't, I don't know anymore. Uh, ben Baldwin, you know, he's kind of like the Tannehill guy. He's kind of like, you know, Tannehill's in that like upper echelon of quarterbacks. But maybe maybe he's not. But, but you know, I, I happen to think of you as the uh, the Case Cookish guy, someone who's not really on an NFL team right now. Um, how did that bit, brand like, build yet. Yeah, how did, how did that bit even start? And like, what was the journey to you like for you to tweet about case cookies every time like you made a highlight play in the usfl so i i did not think that this bit would last longer than a couple of days when it started <laughs> right like and I've, I've had a couple of bits on twitter like you know a, a get a life of their own but i did expect that you know they might last right like i hate ndsu players carson wentz enters the mvp conversation i'm gonna be talking about this forever you know mitch trubisky can't throw left i'm gonna be talking about this forever right but Case Cook is, I did not think would be a bit. So what it happened was um, Kellen Mond uh, came down with COVID during training camp, right? And uh, as a result of the close contact protocols, um, a number of other quarterbacks, uh, namely Kirk Cousins and Nate Stanley, um, you know, could not participate in practices for the next five days. Kellen Mond couldn't for the next 10 days. So the only quarterback the Vikings had on the roster was Jake Browning, who played a lot better in camp than I think he had any right to. So like props to Jake Browning, but they couldn't have him throw 300 passes a day in camp so that all three teams could get um, their reps in. Right. And so they needed to sign other quarterbacks. So they signed some random other quarterbacks. They think they, they grabbed a Danny Etling, I think was one of them. Um, and then they signed this quarterback from Northern Arizona named Case Cookus. And I'd never heard of him. And his name was so ridiculous. I didn't expect him to even throw a pass in camp. I thought he was just going to be kind of a body for like, you know, whatever we like to hand the ball off on, on running back drills or something. So, you know, I'd never heard of him. I reached out to Emory Hunt, who is maybe, you know, the best guy in terms of small school um, players. And he's like, Oh yeah. Case cook is a dog. You'll love him. And I'm like, I'm not going to see him. I, what do you mean? I'll love him. He's not going to be here for like three more days, man, but thanks Emory. And he gave me a lot of really good information about this guy. Um, and uh, which I mean, props to Emory 100% right on case cookies, but um, yeah, he, he showed up in camp. I took a couple of pictures of him. I tweeted out the word case cookies because I thought that name was so funny, right? It's so ridiculous, which, you know, my name's Arif Hassan. What, what like right do I have? But, you know, it was so funny that somebody would name their kid 
Case with their last name was Cookus, right? It's just like wild to me. And so I just tweet out the name Case Cookus when the transaction report comes across. I tweet out the name Case Cookus whenever any relevant, you know, Vikings news about him happened, which was not very often. I took a picture of him at camp and I tweeted out Case Cookus. And then, uh, you know, the Vikings had their quarterbacks come back from, you know, the COVID protocol and they waived Case Cookus, which makes sense. He's not even a tryout player, right? They, they, they went deep into the Rolodex, right? They didn't even grab a tryout player. They grabbed uh, you know, undrafted free agent that that hadn't even been on anybody's radar. And I thought that was it. And then he gets drafted in the 12th round of the USFL. And I was like, okay, this is hilarious. This is very funny. Uh, also, actually, at the before that, at the combine, someone came up to me and they're like, hey, Arif, I covered Case Cookus at Northern Arizona. Let me tell you everything about him. And I was, I loved this. I was enchanted, <laughs> right? So now I become like this Case Cookus expert. Then he gets drafted in the USFL. All he has to do is beat out this division three quarterback from Occidental college. And, he, and that guy gets injured and now he's starting and now he's playing like, well, like he was playing at an MVP level. Like I, I genuinely believe I have a actual take that Kyle Sloter screwed case Cookus out of league MVP because they voted on the award too soon in a nuts thing to care about, right. For the USFL. Right. I cannot believe that Kyle Sloter got first team quarterback. There were still two weeks left in the season. What, who cares? Right. But, um, but yeah, and he ends up doing the thing. He ends up like winning the whole, like, it's just like wild that he ended up becoming a relevant quarterback. I never expected that. I thought it was going to be like a two, three day thing. Um, but he ends up like consistently like more power to him. Like fantastic dude. Like the only uh, offensive player in the history of NCAA football to earn a targeting penalty. Yeah, man, this guy rocks. Uh, like, like, like they, they, they almost have a statue uh, of him at Northern Arizona. They might as well, right? Like he, uh, he gutted it out. He's like a six-year player from him. He'd suffered from a bunch of injuries. He has this rocket arm, obviously a really good athlete. He has like two 60 plus yard touchdowns in the USFL um, as a runner, I should say. Um, and he's got like a pretty good arm. And so like, you know, power to him that he was able to demonstrate that he might be the best quarterback of this group. I don't know if that means anything. I've seen the best quarterback in the XF, uh, XFL and the AAF not amount to much in the NFL, but you know, it, it's, it's really cool that, that he got that shot and he was able to prove himself. Um, but it's still like, it kind of took a life of its own because for a while, anytime he popped up in any tweet or news event, I would just tweet out the name case cookies. Cause again, ridiculous name. And it just kind of reinforced itself as a bit. People kept tweeting at me, the words case cookies. Sometimes they would attach a highlight of his and now it's like a thing. And so like, you know, Seth Galina is known for being like hilariously wrong about Justin Herbert, but at least it's like a guy who's in the NFL. I'm known for a guy that's not with an NFL team. It's it's just it's Case Cookus, right? Like it's it's such a weird identity to have. But it, I mean, it's been fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a fun bit. Um, but yeah, Arif, really appreciate you coming on. For our listeners, you can find Arif um, at Twitter, at Arif Hassan NFL. Make sure to go check out all of his work at The Athletic, writing about the Vikings and Minnesota. Um, Arif, is there anything else you want to plug before uh, let, we let you go? Uh, yeah, just follow me on Twitter, like you said. I've also got uh, a podcast, a Vikings podcast called Norse Code, uh, N-O-R-S-E. Um, that one's pretty fun. That one goes for like three hours. Uh, most of the, like most of the time, we're not even talking about football. Like the, the back half of the show is just random questions. I don't have any kids, but I have a, a child rearing corner. People ask me like parenting questions that I like answer very badly. Uh, beekeeping questions, plant care questions. I know nothing about any of these topics. It's a lot of fun. So yeah, check out that podcast. You can skip past the Viking stuff, or you can stop before you get to the non-Viking stuff. It's got something 
uh, for a lot of people, De- definitely not everyone, but for a lot of people. Yeah, I, re- I really appreciate you coming on. And again, thanks. Uh, make sure you go check out his work, everyone. So now it's time for our uh, bet of the week. So I'm actually going to fade another team here, similar to my bet from two weeks ago, which is fading the Bears. I'm going to be fading the Las Vegas Raiders. I'm going to be taking their under eight and a half wins. So the the Raiders, right? Interesting team this offseason. Big splash move going and getting getting Devontae Adams, signing Josh McDaniels from uh, the Patriots, hiring Patrick Graham as defensive coordinator. I think on on the outside, they filled a lot of their big holes well, but I think there's a lot of underlying problems with this team that leans me to take the under. So first of all, the Chiefs, you know, look at the rest of the division. The Chiefs didn't really get worse. They didn't get better either. They're still probably like the favorite to win. The Chargers and Broncos all got better. I think they got better more than the Raiders, if we're being completely honest. The Raiders also last year were one of the most fraudulent playoff teams, right, out of out of every team in, in the NFL. The problem with them making the playoffs is now they have the third hardest um, schedule using uh, like Vegas win totals to predict uh, uh, strength of opponent. So, you know, good on them. They beat the Chargers. They beat my Chargers in week 17. But they did all of that just so now they have the third hardest schedule in the NFL. In terms of like how good they were last year, right? Like last year entering the playoffs, they were the 21st best team by the betting market, like the betting market implied rankings by like unpredictable, ranked 21st negative 65 point differential so their pie tag win total is probably like seven and, and nine or some seven point something and nine and something right and obviously a lot of that came against the chiefs but still negative 65 point differential seven and two and one score games beating guys like nick mullins and carson and the bad version of carson wentz towards the end of the year so this wasn't really a playoff team they obviously got a slightly better with adding Devonte adams but the reason I'm fading them is I look at this roster, the two uh, units that, you know, at PFF we've kind of deemed as the weak link units where uh, your weak links matter more than how strong your strongest links are. So offensive line and the secondary, the, their offensive line is, might be one of the worst in the NFL last next, the, next year. Colton Miller left tackle. He's like their only good player. John Simpson is, is horrible. Andre James is like a below average center. Alex Leatherwood, was statistically like one of the worst rookie offense linemen we've ever seen since like PFF started charting offense alignment. Their projected right guard Denzel Good literally retired today. So they're going to be starting like Dylan Parham from Memphis, who's a rookie, or Thayer Munford, who was a tackle, I think, at or a guard at Ohio State. So you have four weak links along this offensive line in a division with Chris Jones, Khalil Mack, Joey Bosa, Randy Gregory, um, uh, Bradley Chubb, right? Like th- that, this offense line is going to be horrible. And you look at the secondary, I mean, this secondary is going to be a bottom five unit. And the whole idea of playing too high is that you have a secondary that can kind of eliminate um, explosive passes. Trayvon Mullen is like an average corner that can never stay healthy. Rocky Asin is a very inconsistent corner is coming from the Colts going to be asked to play a new scheme under Patrick Graham. Nate Hobbs is great in a cover three scheme, but now he's going to be transitioning to too high. 
Jonathan Abram was has literally been like the worst safety in the NFL for the past three years or since he got drafted. Trayvon Merrick is fine, but how is he going to transition from a one high free safety position to a two high safety position? You know, a lot of changes on this back end playing in a new scheme. And then finally, this interior D line again might be the worst in the NFL with Bilal Nichols, Jonathan Hankins, and Vernon Butler. And like Patrick Graham is going to be expected to run too high, too high effectively with his defense. I'm not buying it. His offense line is bad. You know, their skill weapons are fine, but I, I don't see a lot of potential with this team. And the depth is, is really bad, which kind of goes to the topic of this episode. You can't really build a team with a lot of good depth if you have a quarterback like Derek Carr. Um, last note on this. There is a certain website that ranked the Raiders secondary as an above average unit. I'm not going to say who. If you know, you know. There's only one, you know, website that would provide this type of analysis and they force you to pay 900 bucks for, for picks every year. But, but yeah, Tage, what do you, what do you think of the under eight and a half plus plus 100, by the way, um, is the best price. Yeah, no, that was, that was a great explanation. I love the, the AFC West rivalry there um, that, that you have uh, from the Chargers Raiders side. But um, yeah, my, my thing about the Raiders is as a football fan, I'm very excited to see Derek Carr throw to Devontae Adams, Darren Waller, and Hunter Renfro. I think, you know, you can't, you can't, there's not many trios in the NFL that are better than that. As an analyst, I'm worried about the Raiders a lot. Um, you know, they, they went into overtime four times last year, won all of those games somehow, which, you know, rarely happens given how random overtime games are in the NFL. Um, I think they, they had five or six games where they won as time expired by their field goal kicker kicking a game-winning field goal. So just just very, very um, you know, lucky last year in in a lot of things. Um, I turnover luck, I think they ranked 10th in the league if if my memory serves right. So, you know, basically everything went their way last year just for them to barely get into the playoffs in week 17. Um, yeah, the offensive line worries me a lot. And yeah, I just I I I, yeah, I, I, I would lean under there for the Raiders too. I think a lot of smart people um, are, are also kind of on that side too. So yeah, I think they're going to be flashy at times. And, you know, I, I, I don't see um, Josh McDaniels as an upgrade over John Gruden, which I know he's only there half the year mm. as a play caller. Uh, the last time Josh McDaniels was a head coach, it went pretty poorly. Um, so, so I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of, lot of moving pieces for them, them to figure out there. Um, but Gruden did a lot to maximize Carr's aggressiveness. Um, his, his average depth of target increased each year with Gruden. You know, he was more of a conservative quarterback before Gruden got there. So I don't know, Josh McDaniels, I thought, you know, as good as an offensive coordinator as he was his entire career in New England, when he had a quarterback most similar to, to Derek Carr last year and Mac Jones, he didn't lean into what Mac Jones was really good at at Alabama, which was all the RPOs and stuff. So that worries me. Is he going to not lean into what Derek Carr is really good at uh, in, in Las Vegas? But um, yeah, that's a, that's a good bet. I'm, I'm glad you, um, I'm glad you, you laid that out there. And uh, yeah, now we have both bears fans and Raiders fans who will, will come after us, which is okay because I know, I know you can, you can fend them off on Twitter, but okay. So to get into the, the unhinged tweet, it's actually multiple, but they're about the same topic this week. Um, so they're, they're both about Lamar Jackson. So Mike Sando, uh, who, who released his quarterback tiers today, where he surveys some people in the league and, and puts together, you know, tiers based on what they voted 
said, everyone respects Lamar Jackson. League will consider him tier one when he handles pure pass situations more expertly. It's a requirement for tier one, no matter how great a player is in other areas. In the meantime, he's a top 10 quarterback. So <laughs> um, since, since 2019, in pure passing situations, when the expected pass, uh, according to Ben Baldwin's model that he built for NFL Fast R, is greater than 70%. So there's 70% chance or higher that a team will pass on that play, uh, including everything, you know, passes mostly, rushes and, and scrambles and sacks. Uh, Lamar Jackson ranks fourth behind Mahomes, Herbert, and Stafford for EPA per play in pure passing situations. Steven Ruiz uh, responded to this tweet and said use, he used 75% expected drop back probability since 2018, and Lamar Jackson ranks fifth among active quarterbacks uh, behind Mahomes, Herbert, Aaron Rodgers. And, um, oh, sorry, fourth among active quarterbacks. And so, and so then, you know, you have the 33rd team uh, who published this article on where they, they clustered quarterbacks, but they didn't include rushing situ you know, statistics when they, when they clustered. And, you know, I I'm all for good clustering analysis. Like, I think that's, that's great analysis when you can do that, but you have to include rushing statistics. That's an integral part of the NFL today. And so then Lamar Jackson showed up in not Mahomes's cluster. They didn't say who else was in the Lamar Jackson cluster. There could have been other good quarterbacks there, right? Like there could have been similar level quarterbacks to Lamar Jackson that showed up in that cluster but they just said, oh, because he's not in the Mahomes cluster, uh, because he's kind of on the opposite, si opposite side of that, then he's not, a, he's not that good of a quarterback. And if you take out his MVP year, all the stats show that he's not a good quarterback. You can't just take out someone's <laughs> MVP year. He's only, he's only played, you know, three or two, two full seasons in the league. Um, and, you know, one of them was his MVP year. And then the other one, he was, he made the playoffs and won a playoff game and was overall pretty good. So it was, it's, it's kind of lazy analysis from both Mike Sando and the 33rd team. Those who really know and understand Lamar Jackson's play know that he is, you know, a top eight quarterback in the league right now with the potential to play at a tier one level uh, if needed. Yeah. I, it's tough because Sando, Sando is really a great analyst. I, I'm not, really sure what he was he meant to say with that tweet maybe you know maybe we both interpreted it wrong and like maybe he was rehashing what the league was saying but but to like say that he, he needs to handle pure passing situations more expertly like i don't know how you can like throw that statement out without like the evidence and the evidence shows the opposite he's an expert court ranking in the top five in, in these type of situations i mean that warrants an expert title to his name um, so again, I, I agree with you in the 33rd team. I mean, I don't really want to even talk. I don't think we need to talk about that. That was like, I, I mean, that article got flamed by like every analytics person. The, the funniest, I have to say the funniest thing to me was, was them calling clustering like intense data science or something. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> it's not even, I don't even think it's like machine learning. Right. So, um, yeah. but yeah, L Lamar is, Lamar is great. And if, if you actually look at his entire body of work, including rushing in these pure passing situations. There's few quarterbacks that are better than him. And the quarterbacks that are better than him are, are tier one and two quarterbacks. So, I mean, at least he said he was top 10, which, you know, we should give some credit to Mike Sando for that. But, but yeah, that, that was a, that was a good tweet to pick for this, for this week, because we had the Lamar article last week, and then we had the, the quote this week. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it just seems like each week something comes out where they're trying to downplay Lamar's importance between the ESPN executive rankings not having him in the top 10, then the clustering article, then Mike Sando's tweet. Like, you know, I think I think like Lamar just gets kind of lost in the shuffle of everything because, you know, there he had he's had COVID multiple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was playing with a very injured team last year. He might have been playing injured himself. You know, he's dealing with uh, some sickness at times. He did end up getting injured. At, at one point, um, it was just like, a, I think it was just like a perfect storm of bad things to make everyone's like recency bias about him be low. But just overall, when you look at everything like Lamar, for Lamar, you can't like for other quarterbacks, for pure pocket passing quarterbacks, you can separate their team's run game from their their passing game. Right. But for mm-hmm. Lamar and like a Kyler or like other quarterbacks like that, you can't do that because they control so much of their run game. Like when Lamar hands off the ball, uh, a running back has a, already a plus 0.03 expected EPA uh, compared to the average running back that would, or if an average quarterback was handing them the ball because Lamar's gravity in that situation is going to open up so many things. So he just elevates the entire offense um, to a point that, you know, other quarterbacks that, you know, might be as good uh, passers or maybe better passers than him don't add with their, with their rushing ability. So, you know, I think, I think like a lot of that gets lost when talking about Lamar, but it's, it's very important to be talked about um, when, when he's brought up. Yeah. I think I need to, I wonder if this could be the case. Like um, you remember that, that graphic that our boy uh, at MIBPJ posted about like the Chargers fourth down EPA in primetime mm-hmm. games versus non-prime. I wonder if that's the case for Lamar, like his pure passing EPA in primetime games where like the spotlight's on him and like everyone's watching and they actually see some of his negatives is like amplified more than like other games. Like, ah, I'm not, that's just a hypothesis. Maybe you yeah. hit him to make that graph again for the Ravens. Cause I mean, I don't, I don't really know the other, cause otherwise it's just looking at his playoff games and he's played four games. So we're basing our analysis off for a four game sample size. That's even worse. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that'd be a, that'd be a cool graph, but I, yeah, I'm curious to see the results for that, but, um, but yeah, no, this is, this is a lot of fun. You know, I'm, I'm glad we, we got to talk about, you know, what, what it's like to, to kind of have a non-elite quarterback and team building from there, which is, I think is a cool topic. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you proposed that when, when we were discussing episode planning, you know, thanks to Arif for coming on and, and talking to us, had a lot of fun with him. Uh, until then I'll take the points. <laughs>